0: So I um, started writing a sermon on Monday, and um, it was a sermon on money. I thought it was really good. It was going really well. Um, but then I read a commentary, and um, I had a choice at that point whether to stick with my money sermon that was you know a few pages in or to preach on the, what the passage actually said. So I prayed about it, and uh, I went with the, uh, the actual passage, which is a, it's always a good thing to do. Um, I... I think that um, the passage does have something to do with money. There's no doubt about that. But it's probably not what you think. And if you really think about what he's saying, um, you'll see that. And we'll we'll come to that in a minute. But um, I think that instead of being about money, it's more like a passage about um, what must I do to inherit eternal life. I mean, that is the question that begins the passage after all. So that's what it's about is... um, what kind of righteousness will it take for me to actually go to heaven, to put it very simply? And um, the answer Jesus gives seems to be like there's really nothing you can do. Um, that it's harder for a good person um, to go to heaven than it is for a camel to pass through the eye of a little needle. Um, you know, you can substitute wealthy with good, I think, there. And so. Um, what he's saying is that you have to receive all of your righteousness to go to heaven. You can't bring anything to the equation. And you've got to know that, that you're not bringing anything to the equation, which is what this, what we call the rich young ruler didn't know. He didn't realize that, which is why he went away sad. Um, and so I want to look at um, these two different ideas about righteousness that I've been talking about. And there's a lot of different ways you could put it. You could call it... Um, achieved righteousness, which is what the rich young ruler is counting on, versus received righteousness, which is what it takes to go to heaven. Um, you could call it active righteousness, which is the activity uh, that you engage in in order to be saved. Or you can call it passive righteousness, which is the non-activity, the uh, simple reception of righteousness that is what actually saves you. So I'm going to use the terms active and passive, i didn't really know what to use i kind of went back and forth all week but i stuck with these and i hope it's helpful um, active righteousness which doesn't work which is kind of an illusion and then passive righteousness which is the only way that a person can be saved so this wealthy young man who's sometimes called a rich young ruler he comes up to jesus and he's very sincere he's not trying to play around or play word games with jesus he's very curious Um, He's clearly wealthy. He's kind of a textbook disciple. He is what, uh, if somebody came to church and were like the the perfect uh, future elder or leader, this is what this rich young ruler is. So it's very strange that Jesus almost gets impatient with him, kind of is off-putting to him. But this guy asks a legitimate question, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? In other words, what activities do I need to be participating in, in my daily life, to be able to be saved? And it's worth thinking about right now, how would you answer that? Like, if you died right now, um, what would it take for you to get in, to get into heaven? And I think a lot of Americans would simply say, as long as you're not really super evil, you know, it's a pretty low bar for Americans, like, as long as your heart is kind of in the right place, somewhere, like, close to the right place, then you're fine. Um, But if you ask a devout Muslim, they would say it's like scales. And if your good deeds outweigh your bad, you're good. But if your bad deeds outweigh your good, by even a small amount, then it's not good. And if you ask someone who's Hindu, they would say, well, over the course of many different reincarnations, if the scales of karma keep tipping in the right direction, then eventually you'll get there. Um, There's a lot of different ways to answer that question. It's like one of the great questions of life and of religion is... um, What must I do to be saved? And Jesus says, why do you ask me about what is good? That's his his answer to that. Again, he seems almost irritated. He will not answer the question. Instead, he asks a question, which so often happens with him. Why do you ask me about what is good? And then he makes this seemingly random statement. Verse 17, there is only one who is good. And it's clearly not you, he's saying to the rich young ruler, It's not you. Um, it's actually the one you're talking to. Um, and I think that the reason he, he is saying that is he's trying to tell this guy, it's, salvation is not a what question, it's a who question. It's not a question about some activity you engage in, it's about a relationship with someone. So you're not earning your way or achieving your way to heaven, you simply have to be in a relationship with this good, goodness itself to be saved. Notice how... Jesus defines uh, salvation in verse 17, if you would enter life. So entering life is not necessarily a way that we think of as salvation. So you kind of have to start thinking about different ideas in your mind when you think of heaven. He calls it entering life. And in verse 29, he calls it inheriting eternal life. And you know, an inheritance is something that's given to you. It's not something that you work up to have. Um, and then in verse 28, uh, again, this is not necessarily the way we normally think about heaven. He says that it's, it's a new world. That's the word that is used there. Uh, it's a brand. New, it's a new creation, in other words. It's a whole new creation. And uh, in that new world, you are going to be on thrones with the Son of Man. You know, that's kind of compressing all of 28 into one idea. is That salvation is like walking with the king... The Son of Man, as he calls himself, it's a title Jesus uses about himself a lot, to say, I am the great king of the world. It's an Old Testament idea. So salvation is, the way Jesus defines it, walking with the king in this new world. Which we find out in the book of Revelation, if you look back at Isaiah and Micah, the new world is like a garden city. It's like planet Earth completely redone, um, rehabbed, uh, redecorated, um, gutted, and then made whole again. So Basically, the way that Jesus is talking about heaven is like you're working with him. You're building things together with him with unlimited creativity, um, with ingenuity, with imagination, uh, innovation. In other words, salvation is not like this reward, like winning the lottery where you get this thing because you do this thing. It's more like salvation is the relationship with the king. You're ruling and you're reigning with him. So it's not really a prize Like a fair, um, a prize you would get at a fair, It's, it's a person. And it's an activity with that person. And so in that sense, you cannot earn salvation by doing all these little things that would add up to righteousness, active righteousness. Which is why Jesus proposes an impossible task in verse 17. This is an impossible task. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. That's what he's saying there. And what he's doing is he's challenging this rich young ruler on his very idea of his own goodness and his act of righteousness and his ability to keep the commandments. It's supposed to be a, a blow to his supposed sense of self-righteousness, but the, look at what the rich young ruler does. He dodges the question. He dodges the question in verse 18. He asks Jesus another question. Um, Jesus just said, keep the commandments, and he says, which ones? In verse 18. That's a very strange question to ask back. Uh, like, Which commandments do I need to keep? To be saved, as if there were some optional ones, like if God could have had seven or eight, but just added two more arbitrarily, um, as if they were kind of like a joke, certain commandments. But this is the thing about active righteousness: is it makes you cut corners, and you end up asking the question, "How little can I get away with doing and still be saved?" That's that's the thing about active righteousness: is that. Um, it always makes you think that God is kind of holding back something from you and asking you to do all these things. So someone will say to me, you know, I've just started dating this wonderful person. And, and my question to you, Pastor, is how far can we go? And uh, I always know, you know, right when they lead in, I know what they're talking about. Like, how close can we get to sex without crossing that line where it's wrong at this point? And it kind of implies, I mean, I understand the question I asked that question, too, to my pastor, but it kind of implies that um, these wise boundaries that God has set on sex um, and premarital sex, like these boundaries are bad, right? It presupposes that he's holding something good back from you and setting these boundaries. So you want to go as far as possible and just not cross a line. And I think that's kind of what is going on with the question, which ones? It kind of shows he doesn't really want to keep the commandments. He doesn't love keeping the commandments. He's doing them as a duty to get something. And that's the problem with active righteousness. It kind of abstracts the commandments as if they're not part of the character of God. As if they're not part of God's goodness. So when you say which ones, you're basically saying how few can I keep and still be saved? And so I love how Jesus responds to that. He just says, well, let me see here. Um, There's murder. Murder. There's adultery, there's stealing, there's always false witness and honoring your parents. And I think at that point, he just kind of stopped listing the commandments. And he looks the guy in the eyes and he says, you know, well, just go love your neighbor as yourself. You know, no problem. Go love even your enemies, even your biggest enemies, as if you had just the same amount of concern for them as you care for yourself. Just go love everyone. He could have also added, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. But I think that um, he was hoping that that would be enough for this guy to say, "Whoa, I don't, I don't. Obviously, I'm not doing that." Um, but it doesn't have that effect on him. There was this philosophy professor at Wake Forest that uh, someone, several people have told me about this story. But um, if you know Matt English, he's the one that told me the story. So if this is wrong, this is uh, this is all on Matt English. His name was Dr. Lewis. Okay, he was a philosophy professor, and sadly, he retired recently. And he used to say. Um, to his class, philosophy class, uh, raise your hand if you think you're going to heaven. And of course, you know, 95% of the class would raise their hand. And so then he would apparently like kind of walk up pretty close, get kind of near their face, and he would say, how old are you? And they would be like, you know, 18 or maybe 19. And then he would say, so you're saying that in your 18 short years of life, you have done enough. To merit eternal bliss? And uh, it was obviously a rhetorical question, like the student didn't know what to say at that point. But if the rich young ruler had been in that class, he would have said, Absolutely. I have done in my 20 short years enough to merit eternal bliss. And look at verse 20. All these I have kept since my youth. What do I still laugh? And sometimes I think Jesus just like busted out laughing when people said things, you know, that he just uh, he, he just couldn't control himself. But uh, this is one of those things where you just wonder uh, how our Lord would respond to someone saying something this idiotic and clearly self-deceived and deluded. It's kind of comical. Our quest for active righteousness I mean, none of us in here would be so bold as to say all these I have kept since my youth. But I think we would say that all things being considered, we're on the right side of things. We're on the, we're on the good side of things. And uh, we think things like, you know, I'm not saying I'm perfect, but I do try my best to be a good person. And certainly if you ranked me on a scale of all the people in Winston-Salem, I'm going to be on the good half. And if I have to grade myself on my goodness I mean, I'm not going to give myself an A plus, um, but if I'm really being honest, maybe a minus, B plus. Um, it's kind of like in Lake Wobegon, where, where Garrison Keillor says all the women are strong, all the men are good looking, and all the children are above average. You know, everyone everyone thinks they're above average, goodness wise. And this guy certainly thought he was above average, and he had reason to think that. And this is the interesting part of the passage. This is where it gets interesting: is that If you had wealth in that day, it was not assumed that you were a greedy CEO who had manipulated people your whole life. Um, It was assumed that you had been a very good person. And it was not a wrong assumption. So don't look down on them like they were crazy. Um, For them, riches were a sign of blessing. I think in the world today, at large, in general, that is the opinion of wealth. That means that's a good person. And in Deuteronomy 28.1... In God's blessing of his people, he says, If you obey me, Deuteronomy twenty-eight, one is in the Old Testament, If you obey me and are careful to observe all of my commandments, blessings will come upon you in abundance with produce and livestock and calves and lambs and bread and baskets and mixing bowls. So if you translate that today, you know, your investments will do well, you'll have a greater salary. Things that we think of as like the prosperity gospel, we don't think about that, but Wealth was a measure of righteousness. And so that is why the disciples are so shocked in verse 25, and they say, if he can't be saved, if a wealthy person can't be saved, how could anyone be saved? And again, I grew up with the opposite view of wealth. For whatever reason, I began to think that it was a measure of unrighteousness. And so I've always thought that in verse 24, Jesus is critiquing wealth. Like that it's impossible to be wealthy and be saved. Because he does say it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. But I think, truly, a better translation of that would be, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a person with active righteousness, like Mother Teresa, or the best person you know, St. Francis of Assisi, you know, list the person, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, someone that you really admire, it is harder to go to he- uh, to heaven for that kind of person than it is for a, uh, a camel to go through the eye of a needle, like a needle when you where you thread things. And I mean, the whole thing is is, is a joke. It's a, it's a hu- it's it's humorous. It's a lampoon on our supposed goodness. And Jesus was often funny like this. He's the image is a woman who is sewing and she's trying to. To thread that needle, which is very hard. I've never managed to actually get that thing. I don't do it a lot, but I've never actually gotten the thread through the needle. And then imagine a camel walking in the room while she's sewing and and getting the nose of the camel and beginning to try to force it through the little eye of the needle. That's how hard it is for your goodness to save you. I saw a cartoon where a person is carrying this gigantic bundle of good works on uh, their back, like Santa Claus, like this huge basket that says good works on them. And there's this expression on uh, their face of surprise and dismay because they, they're looking down um, and there's a little door in the room that says kingdom of God, but it's like it's like a mouse hole, it's like that tiny. And they've got this huge basket of good works. And they realize they can't get through that door with that basket. And so the... Um, the frugal, hard-working husband who is loyal to his wife and he drives his uh, three honorable kids to church in his Honda Odyssey with uh, one of those stick figure family bumper stickers on there and listening to WBFJ, you know, that's good stuff, but that is not um, even going to get you close to the kingdom of God. And uh, the person who sells everything and moves to the inner city and plants, a uh, garden and uh, makes their own clothes and feeds the neighborhood kids and tutors them. That's all good also. It's a different kind of righteousness, but uh, again, that is not in any way going to cut it. That's the whole point of my first point, is that active righteousness doesn't get you anywhere. In fact, it gets you the wrong direction, because you start trusting in that. And so in verse 26, Jesus looks them right in the eye, probably for several seconds, it says Jesus looked at them, and that's in there. It doesn't waste words. Matthew never wastes any words. So he, he didn't just say Jesus said, but he says Jesus looked at them. And he probably stared them down. And he said, with man, it is impossible. In your own effort, you cannot be saved. Because the gap between your goodness and God's perfection is too big. So that's point one. Now point two is the good news, which is that there is a way to be saved. Namely, passive righteousness, which is why Jesus says, With God, all things are possible. With man, it is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. And um, sadly, that quote is taken out of context a lot. Um, I hear people quote it a lot, like in um, Steph Curry, you know, the great point guard for the Golden State Warriors, who I love, but his shoes say, I can do all things on them. I think that's what it says, which is a quote from Philippians. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And Paul's talking about he, how he's, um, he's about to die. And he's been like attacked all the time and whipped and thrown into prison. And and, and yet he can still make it through that. And then with Steph Curry, it means I'm going to hit a lot of threes th- this game. Like, I can do everything. <laughs> so it's a little different. And um, in the same way, with God, all things are possible does not mean... Uh, I can make all A's, or if I really put my mind to it, I can run a 15-minute 5K, or I can get that job, or I can date that girl. That is not in any way what he's talking about. uh, Last night, Kyle Guy, who was the UVA uh, guard, really irritated me. Um, They asked him, like, what lesson would you take away from this great victory over Purdue? And first, Kyle Guy gave thanks to the Lord. And then he said this, you can do anything you want to if you put your mind to it. And I'm like, that is not, that is not at all what uh, you should be saying right now. You, you know, you should be saying it was a gift of God that that crazy pass was made and that guy hit that crazy shot. Um, you cannot do anything to save yourself. That's what Jesus is saying here. And yet, with God, all things are possible. He can do it. So don't think about that phrase the way it's normally used in our society. What it's saying is that there's this impossible miracle out there... That Jesus alone brings into the universe and it's called passive righteousness. And it's really arbitrary to say that like Christianity is better than Buddhism or Hinduism or Islam or whatever ism, whatever other religions there are. If you're grading them all on the plane of like righteousness, active righteousness and which one makes you a better person. It's really arbitrary to say all the Christians are better and then all the Buddhists and Muslims and Hindus are like down here. The reason that we say it's so unique is simply because it's on a different Scale. It's like like on a vertical scale rather than a horizontal scale. Because this idea of passive righteousness just is not out there to be found in any other literature. It's just not there. This idea that something is coming down from above to be given to you as a gift that has nothing to do with your behavior, that is a brand new idea on the whole world of human philosophy and religion. Because it is not achieved but can only be received. It is not anything you can earn. Even the beginning of one cent of, it is not a paycheck. And so when Paul wants the church at Rome to know this, he compares it to wages. This is one of my favorite verses in the Bible, Romans 4, 5. To the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as something he he is due. Okay, So you get that, what Paul is saying. It's pretty obvious. If you work hard, then your wages are not a gift to you. But to the one who does not work, but simply trust in God who justifies the wicked. And he uses a really strong word there, wicked. His faith will be credited to him as righteousness. That's an incredible idea. Powerful idea. That idea is so powerful that it changed Western civilization in 1515 when Martin Luther had this insight on a toilet, no less. He was on a toilet in the Wittenberg Castle in 15. 15- Fifteen, and um, sometimes it's called the seat of the reformation and he says this I grasped then that the righteousness of God is that righteousness by which through grace and sheer mercy God justifies us through faith I felt that I had been born anew and the gates of heaven had been opened to me that's what Jesus is saying when he says with, with man righteousness is impossible but with God all things are possible. And notice how Jesus is trying to get that guy to realize that. That's why he kind of plunges his sword into the guy's heart in verse 21. And he tells the guy, um, if you would be perfect, then go and sell what you possess and give it to the poor. And the reason he's telling that guy that is he's saying, look, look you're, you don't keep all the commandments. If you would just think about it for a second. You, you can't sell your possessions because you love them so much. Because you're, you, you're covetous. And you look so good in all these different ways, but you don't realize that the tenth commandment is not something you can measure with a scale. It's really hard to see someone being covetous. Because it's so deep down. And Jesus is trying to get this guy to realize that he has not kept all the commandments since his youth. That that tenth one, thou shalt not covet, he has not kept at all. And so he says, if you would be perfect, go and sell everything. And that was the chance the man had right there. To have his entire life changed. If he had just accepted that. If he had just given up on his goodness. But instead, when the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful. He had great possessions, verse 22. And I think that's one of the more tragic lines in the whole Bible. Because you actually see a person right there walking away from grace walking away from what gift God has them, because they can't receive it. Um, I was thinking this week, you know, what if he had given in? What if he had broken down there and said, I need you to save me, Lord? Um, What would his his life have looked like differently? I mean, if he was married, uh, what would his marriage have looked like from that point on? I mean, as he was, he would have been an insufferable husband. Uh, He would have been really hard to live with, I think. Um, if he had been a father, what would, what would his parenting have looked like if he had really received the passive righteousness of God? And then I started thinking, well, what would, what would my life look like if I actually believed in passive righteousness? Because I'll tell you this, if, if you're not a Christian, the little secret is that most Christians don't live in the mindset of passive righteousness very often. Not very often. Most of the time we're still thinking active. Um, we're thinking we've achieved all this stuff and then we're pretty good. But what if you actually began to think like someone who has simply received a gift? And one thing that comes to my mind is the idea of playing the martyr. um, Always acting like, you know, you're sacrificing all this stuff for people. And so, um, regularly, Margie will ask me to take our dog out on a walk. And I'll say, um, no, no, it's okay. It's okay. I'll I'll take him out again. You keep watching Netflix. And I I let out this really big, audible sigh, like... You know, I'll, I'll, I'll go do it again. And if you notice that um, Peter is acting like he is doing Jesus a big favor. This is, this is uh, such a typical Peter moment. When, when Jesus tells the rich young ruler to give everything away, Peter's over there like, you know, raising his hand like the teacher's pet. Like, I've got, I've got something to say. And um, then in verse 27 he says, look, we have left everything to follow you. Okay, we're going to go right through that eye of the needle. We, um, we have left everything to follow you, so uh, what then will we have? Like, you know, we're going, to get, we're going to get incredible stuff. And then Jesus basically says, Peter, stop playing the martyr. Peter, you're, you're an idiot. Because, because you're going to get so, so, so much more than anything you put in that it's an absurd calculation. You know, the difference between what you're putting in and what you're getting out is so huge that you're playing the martyr is is absolutely idiotic. So verse 29 he says, Everyone who's left houses and brothers, sisters, father, mother, children, land from Isaac, whatever it is, you're gonna receive a hundred, thousand, million, billion fold in this life and eternal life. So the point is, um, for anyone who's a Christian, you're not sacrificing. Okay, you're not your life's not a martyr complex. You're your life is constantly a gift and you have way more than you ever deserve all the time when the kids were little I would give Margie these breaks um, to go to Starbucks um, many, 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 many times for hours and hours at a time, no I didn't, I didn't do that um, and she would get back and I would say, see I have left everything and followed you I have fed the children, I've given them baths, I've played Legos with them, I've cleaned them up um, and, and she was like, wasn't it like, inherently joyful for you to do that? Like, did you not want to be with your kids and enjoy the people that, you know, mean most to you in your life? And that's what Jesus is saying here. Like, the, is it not a pleasure to be, you know, with me in my service? Are you really sacrificing all the time uh, in, in being with me? Is not uh, my relationship with you enough, Peter? Uh, one time... When I was about 10, my brothers and I stole a lot of money from Wake Forest. Uh, we lived really near the, really near the school, and on our, every time we would go to church, uh, we would come home and go through the law school. And it's not the law school that's there now. It's the law school that's called uh, Carswell Hall. It's, I don't know what it is now, like the overseas program or something like that. But at that point, it was the entire law school. And uh, they had this little dingy snack machine with a, uh, a snack room with a little change machine. And you could put the dollar in, and the quarters would come out. So, we found a way to get our hands, our little hands up in there, and like pull the slots, and the quarters would start coming out. So, we uh, amassed a massive amount of quarters. We were very clever because we would only do a certain amount at a time so that nobody would discover this. And we had put them in a big piggy bank in my brother's closet. And we were saving them up, you know, we were being frugal and uh, we were doing delayed gratification to get this remote control car at K&K Toys in the mall. And so, even though the, the money was not ours, even though we had stolen the money, we would get that treasure out and we would spread it on the floor like every day, the, the fruit of our labor, and uh, I had vivid memories of just counting them all the time. Like, we're, we have $80, we have 10 more to go, we can do this today, we can get, we can get these quarters and do this. And of course, uh, a neighborhood kid ratted us out and we brought him in on the deal. Um, but, you know, isn't that what we do with our, our goodness? Like these little shiny coins of virtue that we take out. And, of course, they're all gifts to begin with. But, um, you know, I've got my sermons here, my little prayers. And I've got my generosity over here. And all these conversations I have with people. And all this stuff I do to sacrifice for my family. And I've got my coins out and I'm taking them out and I'm counting them all the time and looking at them. And Jesus is like, forget about all that. I am the only one who's good. And that stuff's worthless. And I am the only one who keeps the commandments. I've kept them since my youth. I never broke one. I love my neighbor as myself to the point that on the cross I said to the people crucifying me, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. And so he's saying, I have earned eternal life. Uh, I have entered into life, and I gave it all away. I sold everything to have you with me. And so that's what you need. You need the passive righteousness that comes from Christ, which is his own righteousness. And that's why uh, he was actually crucified uh, and totally cursed for living the perfect life. That was the equation for him. Live a perfect life. Don't enter into life, but enter into death, enter into hell so that when we live this terrible life, we can get heaven, and we can enter into eternal life. And that's what this meal is about. And so it's really hard for me to preach a bad sermon because I can always know that no matter what I've said, it ends with grace. It ends with this meal. And, um, and so we come to this table as people who are in need of grace, as people who are searching for passive righteousness. And so if you choose not to partake, there and not partake, which is, I think, a very, very good decision if you're not really sure what you believe. So I want you to feel no pressure to come up here. We don't want to force anyone into hypocrisy. But if you choose not to uh, and take that step of integrity, I just want you to know that everyone coming up here is, is saying, I'm not better than you. Christianity is not a religion where you say, I am better than you. That's just got no place at all. Uh, because this is all about people coming up here and saying, I have not kept the commandments. Since I was a youth, and um, I do not uh, deserve eternal life, and that it, this is a, an impossible miracle that I should be saved and so um...